This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. We're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. And our guest this week is a true Renaissance man. He's a singer, songwriter, musician, producer, voice artist, and even a former publisher of the Paris Review. Oh, a highbrow, eh? <laughs> you know his singing voice from dozens of popular television commercials, including spots for Coke, Dr. Pepper, Coppertone, KFC, Tang, Lifesavers, and McDonald's. Trust us, you know them. While still a teenager, he was working in the famed Brill Building and recording demos for some of music's biggest stars, including Connie Francis and Neil Sadaka, and touring with acts like the Hollies, the Rolling Stones. In 1969, he sang lead vocals on two of the year's biggest records, Tracy by the Cufflinks and the number one song of that year, the Archie Sugar Sugar. In his 50-year career, he's worked with and alongside people like Bobby Darren, Johnny Mathis, Gene Pitney, Cher, Carol King, Ray Charles, John Denver, Pat Benatar, and our friend Paul Schaefer, and of course, Barry Manilow, producing a string of best-selling albums and 18 consecutive hit records including the number one singles, Mandy, I Write the Songs, and Looks Like We Made It. You want more? He's also the Tony-winning producer of numerous Broadway plays like Ain't Misbehavin', Neil Simon's Little Me, and Children of a Lesser God. But like many great artists, his one unfulfilled career goal is to sing a duet with me, Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> Even if he doesn't know it yet. The poor guy. Please welcome to the show a man of multiple talents, Staten Island's own Ron Dante. Well, hello there. I am exhausted. That 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 should I am ex- I should be so tired. I should go home and go to sleep for a while. I can't believe I did any of that because I'm always looking ahead, so I don't very rarely look back. So this was like listening to. I said, "Did I do that? You Wait, did. Did, did, did. Did I do? It? I think I did. You did. It was man. just. I just took every opportunity ever came around, Gilbert. I just came, when they said, <laughs> "Can you?" I said, "Yes." Can you sing? Yes. Can you dance? Can you act? Yes. 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 And then I learned how to do it after I said yes, and it was a it was a rough road for. A while, but I got it. Yeah, I, anyway, I'm a huge fan of yours. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, wow. I am. I'm a huge. I saw you when you were starting out in the village and some of the clubs in New York City. I came to one of your earliest performances, and even then, I said, "This fella's got something. He's really, really good." It was before your voice changed a bit. Was, <laughs> <laughs> wow, you was something really young. I hit puberty. <laughs> Wow, that's great. Well, he started when he was 15, Ron. I don't know how far back you saw him. Well, it was, it was you were pretty far along. You had your act really down pat. You were really funny. And the people were really roaring in this room. I saw it down. There was the, it was a Catch a Rising Star or one of those places. But it was, it was great to see you then. And, and you've gone on to do unbelievable things. 
Oh, thank you. You're welcome. And and now tell us about your, you came from Staten Island, you grew up there. And what is your real name? Well, I was born another name. I was born Carmine Granito. A paisano. Yeah. Uh, Paisano, or, or as I like to call him, a fucking guinea. That's <laughs> he, he. He works with two Italians and abuses us every week. Ron. I don't mind. I don't. I know. I know where you're coming from. My both parents were Napolitan. They, they both. Oh. My dad sang a little bit. I grew up in Staten Island. It's like eighty percent Italian. So you're very safe on Staten Island <laughs> unless you, you do something wrong, like bet the wrong bet. But I grew up there, and I was lucky to. You know, I, that was my name. But I decided to change it when I was about fourteen. Because all the singers I idolized, uh, uh, you know, uh, Bobby Darren, uh, Frankie Avalon, Bobby Rydell, uh, everybody was changing their names. They would get stage names. So I figured, well, I'll choose a name. So I was a big fan of Spencer Tracy and in the movies. And he had a movie called Dante's Inferno, I think. Oh, wow. And that's where I said, I love that name. It's got color. I can use red on my guitar. So I chose that name as my, uh, my uh, stage name. And I idolized one of the best guitarists in Staten Island. He was named uh, Ronnie Anderson. And I, I said, I think I'll call myself Ronnie. So at the beginning of my career, I was Ronnie, you know, until I, I changed my name when I was about 20 to Ron. Well, tell us how you got into music in the first place, because it's interesting, because it, it, it involved a childhood accident. Oh uh, yeah, I was uh, I was a very active kid, but I was a klutz. So I was always like uh, breaking bones. I broke my arm. I broke my leg. I got an arrow stuck in my head once, all before <laughs> I was fourteen. And, and uh, I busted my arm, and the doctor said, "You know, you you busted the growing bone in your wrist, and if you don't exercise, it'll be stiff the rest of its life, your life." So he said, "You either squeeze a ball or maybe take up an instrument." So I was a huge Elvis fan. I'd seen all his movies and, you know, you know Heartbreak, all the stuff that he had done. And I, my dad said, well, get you, get you a little guitar. You know, you play guitar, you move your wrist every day. And that's what started my singing and my songwriting. You know, just, isn't that cool? This and, and when, I, when, I, when I heard that story, mm-hmm. you have something in common with Larry from the Three Stooges. <laughs> I can't wait to hear this. Yes. Larry from the Three Stooges, I think his father was like a jeweler or something. Uh-huh. And they used some sort of acid to test if something was real gold. And and Larry accidentally burned his arm really badly. And the doctor told him, uh, well, he, he said, you got to exercise that if you want your arm back. And first, he suggested prize fighting. And Larry from the Three Stooges won the prize fight, but uh, his parents were against it. So then the doctor said, well, why don't you take up the violin? That's why he took up the violin. Yeah. Wow. And, And Larry became an excellent violinist, and he played in about two of the Stooges movies. I just loved it. It, it. This accident led to his career. Yes. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not an accident, though. It's, it's kind of meant in people's yeah, lives but, that they, they're going on the wrong road. All of a sudden, you know, you get something happens and you're on your right road again. You know, that's what happened to him. It happened to me. Yeah. I don't know what I was going to do. I, you know, I, I was I was my, gone into my dad's schmatta business. He, he made car codes <laughs> for kids. And, uh, and, and he, he told me, he said, you know, if you don't sing, I'm going to bring you to the factory and let you, you know, watch over the little old ladies uh, putting the coats together. But uh, it just happened. I got I hurt my arm and that was the beginning. Did you yeah. get into music where you? Were you 15 when you formed, you put the band together? Was it the, the Persuaders? Do I have the That's timing right. of this That's right? 
<laughs> you were 15. Right. Gilbert was 15 when he started yes. the show business. You guys hey, have we that were in early common. starters, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you, you knew early where you wanted to go. So did I. There was no doubt. I remember when I was 14, I, I, I played a, a New Year's Eve party and I sang, and the fella gave me 75 bucks cash. And my dad was making 45 bucks cash a week. So I said, this is the business I need to be in. Very smart. There's no doubt about it. This, here's the business. I love it. You know, if, if I can make 75 bucks on a, every Saturday night, I'm, I'm, I'm made. You know, I was, I was a kid. And that, that kind of pointed me in the right direction also. And you were, spent a lot of your career in the Brill Building. So could you give our audience a brief history of why the Brill Building is so magical? Well, it was it was the the hub of the music business right there on like 48th Street, 49th Street and Broadway in the middle of everything. This building with Mr. Brill's uh, statue on the top of the entrance. I just walked by it 10 minutes ago. Right, right. It had figure out who was in there. Music publishers, uh, managers, a recording studio, uh, record companies, you name it. Shysters from all over the world with no, great people. Were there. Pe- great people were in that building, and I remember Paul Simon once saying to me, he used to when he was hawking his songs, he would he said, "You go to the top floor and you walk down because it's much easier to walk down and stop in all the publishers and all the managers' offices than, than walking up. You you, you you won't be able to sing too well. So that's that, that that's why the real building was so magical. Every Bobby Darren had his offices in there, of course. Uh, tons of record companies and managers and pu- a lot of music publishers, which was the easiest access into the music business. So um, that's why people went to the Brill. But there, there were people, the, the hallway downstairs was an, like an echo chamber. And there, once in a while, you'd hear a group just plop themselves in the hallway and start to song, sing their songs or something famous like Blue Moon or one of these oldies. And that's why the, and you could go to the little coffee shop. There was a Greek coffee shop adjacent right in the building. And if you're having coffee, you could, you never know who you're going to sit next to. You might sit next to, you know, somebody really famous that can help you out. So everybody went to that place. And across the street was another building called 1650, which is directly across the street. And that housed the other music publishers and the other managers. So you'd spend your days walking between the buildings until somebody stopped and listened to you, you know. And and who are some of the just struggling uh, music writers who we know today? Well, Carol King was there. Uh, Neil Sedaka was in those buildings. Uh, Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde sure. were just starting out. These people, they wrote the biggest hit of all time. They lost that love and feeling and 30 other hits. There were, there were people all over there. The uh, singer-songwriters were abundant. Neil Diamond was walking back and forth between buildings. I actually sang on some of his early demos. It, it was amazing. The first time I walked into a music publishing company that signed me was Don Kirshner's Music company that Paul Schaefer, you know, talks about a lot. But I was there 10 years before when he had his own publishing company uh, just starting out in that area. And when I walked in the office, I met Tony Orlando the first day. (laughs) (laughs) Neil Sedaka was in a leather coat sitting at a piano writing. Carol King was over here writing in another cubicle. There were all kinds of cubicles. So it was an amazing time. Uh, You can't get in any place anymore. They'll arrest you if you walk in with your guitar. They think you're going to blow the place up. Then everybody was open to you. You could get in. Did you go door to door? Because Tony was on the show with us and he told us that the same thing that I've heard you say, you just, you'd knock on a door. Some of them would, would uh, let you in. Some of them would throw you out. Yeah. Was that the process? 
that was the process, you know. And a lot of music publishers, if they see you walk in, you, you know, you, you don't look like you're going to, you know, just hold them up. They, uh, you have a guitar with you, they'll listen. And, and the quality of your song sells you or the, or the quality of your voice. And uh, it, was, it was easy access. And uh, I remember a lot of my friends got in that way. And uh, look, at, look at what came out of it. The songs still of course, last. Of course. I and, mean, we listen to them every day. And you were the lead singer of the Archies. Yes. And, and you, you wouldn't use your name. And that well, was... I, was, I was supposed to be anonymous. Uh, it, was, it was based on the cartoon comic that was out since 1942 or something with Archie and the gang. And it was a TV series that Don Kirshner was doing the music supervision of. And uh, I, I heard about it and I said, I got to call Donnie. I know him. He's my old publisher from five, six years ago. And I said, I'd like to come up audition for The Voice. He said, no problem. Come on up. I went up to the studio. They listened to me. And they said, oh, you're the guy. And I got the job as the lead voice of the Archies. And uh, we did a TV series for four years on CBS. It was all cartoons. In fact, when the record went number one, I said, oh, good, great, great. Maybe you'll know my name. No, nobody knew my name. Ed Sullivan played the cartoon. He said, now, right here, right here, the Archies. And my mom called me and said, you're on. I said, I'm not quite on. <laughs> my voice is on. Did you? Did, go ahead, Gil. No, I was, I was going to say, uh, I, like I'm sure a lot of guys when the Archies was on, uh, jerked off about Betty and Veronica. <laughs> now, what? So, what was very upsetting to me, uh, considering all the times I've jerked off to them, is that the singing voice of Betty and Veronica I heard was you. No, 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 no. I just did a falsetto. Don't get crazy oh, on me. <laughs> Yeah, this thing used to go south really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, 14 minutes yeah. in, Ron. Yeah, right. here we go. No, no. Uh, I just sang one record where I sang falsetto. It was called Jingle Jangle. It was a right. follow-up to Sugar Sugar. And right. the, the real girl voice, Tony Wine. Oh, oh, great Tony like, Wine. Great, great Tony Wine singer. She wrote Groovy Kind of Love and, uh, you know, uh, Candida. She's a terrific writer. She's on the t- Tony Orlando tour now with him. Anyway, Tony Wine was the female voice of both girls. and uh, But they placed the key... It, it didn't sound right, so they asked me to sing falsetto on it. That was the only thing, so you don't have to worry about Do you about feel better, Gil? I can continue jerking off to the old <laughs> yes, cartoons. The, the, the girls were so beautiful in the comic books, weren't they? Oh, I my mean, Betty God. and Veronica were gorgeous girls. They were so beautiful. Do you know they actually had the same face? It's just different hair. Oh, wow. That's I never thought of that. That's Take interesting. Take a look at it. It's the yeah, same I always, face. But I still always like Veronica. Thought was she was the sexier But one. Mr. Weatherby didn't do it for you? Or <laughs> <laughs> well, Mrs. Grundy. Yeah. yeah. If you're getting off to Mrs. Grundy, you're in trouble. Yes. Mrs. Grundy. I love that. Well, before Kirshner. Uh, wait, know, wait. Go before, ahead. Can you sing the falsetto part of that song for us, please? Sure, sure. It was like, two. Ever since I met you, I couldn't want you better. I couldn't love you stronger if I tried. It's my fake voice. It's my true heart I'm showing. Oh, my nose would be growing. You know that it gets longer if I lie. And then I was singing la, then we did the la, la, la. I kind of felt like... You know, this is a little lightweight for a guy. You know, especially an Italian guy from Staten Island. I'm singing like my Aunt Minnie. And, they, and, and if anybody knows about it, I'm going to get hassled at the gas station when I go to get gas and when I go down to the local social club. So I kept that under wraps, you know, because you want to be, you know, kind of masculine. Which, yeah, but, and and I, was, I was whacking it as you were singing now. <laughs> 
a as greater. As long as you don't do it now, because I can see you now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we should tell our listeners we're looking at Ron over video, and, and he's in Airwolf Studios in L.A., and he can right, right. and he can see us. So Gilbert can't get away with anything. I said Gilbert's starting to take his shirt off. Uh-uh. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of doing voices and the versatility, uh, your versatility, you were doing. Uh, have, if I have this right, you were when you went in to do uh, Sugar Sugar, you tried different sounds and you finally settled on on Donovan. Yes, I, I figured on Sugar Sugar, especially I wanted it was a really cool song. It was simple, but I figured Jeff Barry and Ellie and uh, Andy uh, Kim, uh, Andy Kim, who wrote it, they, they were hit makers. Those guys had had hits already. Sure. I knew they had a chance, so I, I thought about the melody. And as I was starting to do my vocals, I was trying to imagine who would be singing this. You know, what kind of a sound I could get it, and I, I, I wanted a breathy sound. So I was thinking of. They call it Mellow Yellow, right, right. His Mellow Yellow song. And I went, sugar, ah, uh, honey, honey. And it came out my own sound, but in my head I was doing Donovan Leach. You know, I was doing his voice, and it kind of worked. Sometimes when I was doing commercials years ago, I would think, oh, who, who would do this? Uh, Elvis? Who, you know, because you, you have to make up voices for commercials, and you know. So, uh, but that's who I was uh, channeling that day. And I finally get to meet Donovan, and he was a terrible guy, so I didn't want it. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, it was tell very, us. very mean. Very mean to me. Very cold. Oh, I'll sign your autograph. That's $40. Yeah, I say, get out of here. Wow. Wow. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> he, like, he wants the dirt. All yeah. he wants is the dirt run. I can well, give you dirt. Why don't we get into the movie t- section of it? Okay. We'll be back to the show after these important messages. Gil and Frank went out to pee. Now they're back so they can be on their amazing colossal podcast. Podcast. Kids, time to get back to Gilbert and Frank's amazing colossal podcast. So let's go. Let's go back to Kirshner for a minute because before, years before uh, Sugar Sugar happens, uh, you, you're making the rounds of the Brill Building and meeting Kirshner was, was an early turning point. It was, it was the biggest turning point. I mean, he was the biggest guy in the music business at the time. He was on the cover of Billboard and Magazine and, of course, uh, you know, Cashbox and Record World. There was a picture. The day I walked into his office, there was a, a Billboard and a Cashbox in the, uh, you know, the entry room. And there was a picture of him on a locomotive with Little Eva and Carole King. Oh, they yeah, just had the this number one song, Locomotion. So he was the hottest guy in, in music. There was no, no bigger publisher independent. I mean, he published like 30 hits that year. And, uh, and boy, he knew how to promote. So I was really honored when I got to meet him. And, of course, his, his songwriters heard me sing, and then they took me into his office. And he had a white piano with drinks inside one pocket and jelly beans in the other pocket. You know, he was a sugar ha- addict. He loved sugar. And he listened to me sing, and he said, kid, I'm going to give you a publishing job. You'll be the demo maker, and I'm going to pay you uh, 50 bucks a week. And I, I turned it down. I said, I want 55 <laughs> I was negotiating at 17. I said, no, I got my dad's out of work. I got to get an extra five a week. So he said, no problem, kid. You know, and that was, but he changed my life, Don Kirsten. He was a good guy. He helped a lot of songwriters before they became stars. He gave them their jobs and paid the money each week. It's a hit maker. And, and yeah. um, is it true that around the time when the monkeys were at their angriest, wanting to get out of their contract, uh, Kirshner offered them sugar, sugar. Yeah, I mean, that's the story. Uh, I think he may have offered them a song with sugar in the title or something. 
But I've contacted the writers of Sugar Sugar, both Andy Kim and Jeff Barry, and they both said they wrote it directly for the monkey on uh, the monkeys, the Archies, and uh, and uh, so I think that's it. Got a little convoluted. Yeah, I, I hope they turned it down. Because it became a six million seller that year. Six million. <laughs> yeah, it's the number one record of the year. It was unbelievable. The, the the power of it worldwide. People didn't even know what I was singing about. They just heard Sugar Sugar and they liked it in every country. So uh, the monkeys, you know, they had a problem with Donnie because he gave them too many hits. That's basically what it is. He gave them hit after hit after hit. They said, no, I don't, we don't want that anymore. We want our own songs. And. That was the end of the monkeys. And, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry well, you, to say you, I love Mickey Dolenz. You've said history would prove them wrong, and I think it has. You never can tell, you know. It's just they, they would, they, they, they uh, you know, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Uh, they, they insulted the hand that feed, fed them at the time, and it was, it, was, it was a bad move, I thought. But Mickey Dolenz and Davy Jones are great guys. Great and, guys in general. I, I see them all the time. I heard Don Kirshner he, in an interview, he was talking about how the monkeys wanted control. And Don Kirshner's line was, you don't let the passengers fly the plane. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> it's, it's very close. Very yeah. close. Because they were all cast as actors. Sure. Right? They, were, sure. they were actors who were cast to be in a TV group. They, you know, they didn't begin in the bars and, and on the road. They went from obscurity to super fame, you know. And uh, I, think, I think it just got them crazy, you know, because they, they, they figured maybe we can write the hits. You know, it, it depends. But they should be in the Rock and Hall of Fame, in my opinion. I like the, I like the monkeys. I think their, their hits were big enough. They should, there should be a separate uh, section of, in, the, in the Rock and Hall of Fame for those guys. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're still in touch with Mickey. We had Mickey on the show. Yeah, I see Mickey. I see he's on tour this year yeah. with, with um, Mark Lindsay. They're calling the, the Summers of '67. Summers Summer of Love. Of love. Yeah, call, great yeah, guy. So, we, so. we loved Mickey. We had we had Mike here too. We had uh, we had Nesmith too. Both were yeah. great guests. Yeah, they well they had they 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 remember things. They were there and they remember. I have a lot of friends. You probably have friends that don't remember what happened. <laughs> Gilbert doesn't right. remember lunch. No. <laughs> What? I'm forgetting this interview right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I want to go back, Ron. You're in the Brill Building. You're doing demos for people like Connie Francis and Sudaka. And, uh, and were, you, were you recording your own stuff at this time? Were you encouraged to record your own stuff? Uh, not encouraged as much. I did a lot of demos for those writers. They had songs that weren't hit sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and each time uh, I'd, the demo sounded really good, I would, I would say to Mr. Kirshner, uh, can we get a record company to put this out? He said, no, no, we're showing it to uh, the animals. <laughs> we're showing it to Herman's Hermits or Gary Lewis and the Playboys, and they would record it. So I wasn't being prompted to record yet. But a few years in, I started to g- get offers from people to record. And I, you, you mentioned Little Eva before. Now, is that true that uh, Little Eva was Carol King's like maid or babysitter? That's absolutely true. I never absolutely knew that. True. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. How'd you and come up right. with that, Gil? She- <laughs> <laughs> every he surprises me every now and then, Ron. Yeah, Little Eva. I think they were talking, and she was her maid or babysitter. And she said she wants to be a singer. And uh, I, I think Carol King wrote uh, a locomotive for her. Locomotion. Yeah. Locomotion. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, and you're right. And it, she sounded great on it, Little Eva. She did. She did. She doubled a voice. They did multi-track on it, so it was thick. 
And, and you do that for, you know, when you want the, it to be a stronger sound vocally. And that's what they, I think that's what they did with her. It was a big hit. It's yeah. been recorded, what, two or three times, the same Grand Funk Grand Railroad. Grand Funk, had a yeah, with sure, it, right? Right? sure. Gilbert, we should we should record it someday, you and I. <laughs> uh, you, hey, hey, you want to know something? Frank Ferderosa. Well, Frank will find the uh, he'll find, find the, the lyrics. lyrics. We are going to sing it tonight. <laughs> great, we'll sing great, the locomotion. <laughs> but uh, I, I talked to our uh, I talked to our mutual friend Paul Schaefer, uh, Ron. I told him you were coming on. I said, "Do you have any questions for Ronnie? He wanted to know about the detergents." Oh. You'll appreciate this. My first hit after Mr. Big Singer having a, a group and playing CYO centers, I get my first hit record. It's called Leader of the Laundromat. It was based on a parody of Leader of the Pack by the Shangri-Las. Yep. It's all about a, guitar, a, a, a motorcycle love affair that goes wrong and he gets killed. So my, my friend's father, uncle, wrote a song called Leader of the Laundromat, which was a hysterical thing but it's, it's talk and it's singing you know it's like my girl was always putting me down my my laundry came back back brown <laughs> you know, it was like, you know, and, you know so it's an amazing song and we actually had a hit with it yep. on roulette records you did so between you roulette records was owned by the mom oh i was gonna ask right? you about that morris levy yes and we met with him and he said you kids are not going to get any money on this record. It sold about 900,000 copies as a novelty record, 1965, right? We didn't see a penny. We went to him. He said, listen, kid, I'll show you the books, but we keep two sets anyway. So go out on the road, go out on the road, make some money. And we went on the road with Dick Clark's Caravan of Stars. And we, the Shangri-Las would sing Leader of the Pack. And then they would introduce us. And me and my buddies would come out and do Leader of the Laundromat. That's great. <laughs> and, and they would throw records at us. I mean, we almost had a promotion where we gave out albums. And I remember halfway through the song, I saw coming through the lights, they're like these shiny objects being thrown at me. The albums were being thrown back on the stage. They, <laughs> wow. They, it was one of those things. But it was great. The detergents were funny. We did Soupy Sales. We were on the Soupy Sales show uh, singing it live. Yep. We, we did Hullabaloo and Shindig and a whole bunch of things. Sure. But the, the Soupy Sales show was great to do. And, and tell us about that record label because we, we both heard stories. Well, yeah, Tommy James is really the guy to talk about that, uh, about it, the roulette. But uh, the stories are infamous. Well, it's, if you read Tommy's book, I, yeah. I had no idea what was, what was going on it's in that shocking. office. I, I, I understand how much money was being uh, paid to radio stations and jukebox owners to play records. And then they would, they would send, they would like never pay the artist. Tommy never got a royalty check, I, he said, right? He said he'd have to yep. go up there and say, my uncle needs an operation. And Morris Levy would give him like five grand or 10 grand. That was it. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting uh, thing. My, the record producer that produced our record uh, wanted royalties. And he had a physical fight with Morris Levy. I don't know how he survived because Morris was a big guy. He was like the bouncer. He was the bouncer. You know, hey, kid, you know, he was, he was a tough guy. And uh, he wasn't in the movie. They portray him as a smaller man. He's a, he was a big six foot one, six foot two guy. Starker. He was a Starker. Right? He was a guy you didn't want to mess with. Italian guy speaking Yiddish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Well, but before you were the detergents, you were a surf group called the Cabin Crew. 
that was yeah, that was a Don Kirshner a genius idea. He said we need a, an East Coast Beach Boys. So <laughs> my friends who were in the detergents with me, he said go write about a dozen surf songs, uh, East Coast cabin songs about a boat. Right? I said, we got to write about boats. You know, we, so we wrote some songs about boats. We took some pictures, nautical pictures, and then that fizzled, but we used the nautical pictures for the detergents. So the first detergent thing, we got caps on, and we were behind a railing on a ship. And, uh, nobody noticed that. Nobody cared about it. But that was a, that was a cursion of brainstorm. And if the detergents didn't happen, maybe the cabin kids would have happened because he knew how to promote. He was the P.T. Barnum of music. I mean, he, when we, we released the Archie's album, do you know what he rented? He rented Madison Square Garden for a publicity basketball game. And I was the center. And I'm not the biggest guy in the world. We played against the Harlem Globetrotters. Right? And they beat our wow. ass. Wow. What's the, uh, I like Leader of the Laundromat. It's a fun novelty song. What's the, what's the history behind who's that banging on the piano? Uh, it was just because in the Shangri-La's record, there's a lot of bong. Ooh, oh, it's part of the parody. It's bong. It's part of the parody. So we said, well, who's banging on the piano? Because the Shangri-La's have just this big piano chord hitting all through it. It was, it was, it was a great record, actually, Shangri-La's. Paul Vance, who's still with us. I felt so messy standing there. It's so funny how things come around. The writers of Leader of the, Leader of the Pack was one Jeff Barry. Sure. So, so Jeff went on to write Sugar Sugar five years later, four years later. But at the time, they, they, they had every right to sue. And they got the publishing on it. You know, they made, the writers of the original song deservedly got their money. Wow. Wow. It's, it's just funny how careers go and then how you wind up. And then Barry winds up playing a pivotal role in your career. Big role, with big sugar, role. If, with, he, if with, he wasn't involved in the Archies, who knows what would have happened? With Sugar Sugar. Yeah. Did, did, now, did Joey Levine also audition, the, the writer, the, the singer of Chewy Chewy and Yummy Yummy Yummy? Did he audition to be uh, Archie That's as well? That's what I heard. Yeah. Uh, Joey and I are very good friends, old friends. We used to write together and do commercials together. He became a huge commercial producer and writer. But, uh, yeah, Joey, I think, was uh, – they were thinking about Joey for the, uh, the lead voice of the Archies. But uh, I struck a better deal. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And you were saying about that singer Tony James, I think it is. Wine. Tony Wine. Tony, Tony, Tony Wine. Tony, Tony Wine, yeah. Tony Wine, that – on the record, people were saying, who's that black girl singing on it? That's right. That's right. Uh, oh, the I'm going to make your life so sweet part. Yeah, she, she yeah. did both parts. She did I'm going to make your life so sweet, and then she did the high part. And I would get people to stop me on the street and say, I love your new record. It's great. Who's those sisters singing? Because they have lots of soul. And they don't realize Tony's, you know, she's, she's a 
a great soul singer. She's one of those street singer type voices like Ronnie uh, of the Ronettes. She has that same kind of edge. You always know her voice. And uh, she was great. She was Thank God for her on the uh, record. She had it so much. She and was at Joe McGinty's place for, uh, last year. Tony Wine singing live. I got to see oh, her. Oh, wow. It was a treat. She did Candida. And she did Groovy Kind of Love. Kind of Love. And she, she, was, she, wrote. she was like a Jewish girl from Brooklyn or something. Yeah, yes, that's right. <laughs> and, and, she, and everybody thought she was a sister. <laughs> and Ray Stevens is, is in there too, doing hand claps? Is that true? Well, he came to, yeah, he came to visit uh, the session that day with Tony. She, he, she was good friends with him. And, and he said, can I do something on this record? It's Sugar Sugar, right? And so he said, sure, everybody hand claps. Come on out. And... That was the big sound in those records were hand claps. In fact, every Jeff Barry record has hand claps. It's, like, <laughs> it's the sound, man. It's his lucky thing. He puts his hand on everything. I love it. Did, <laughs> did you know? I mean, you had an ear for hits as well. I mean, did you did you know when you came out of the booth or when you when you when you heard the mix? Did you say? I know you said these guys are hit makers, so this has a chance. But did you have any inkling that this thing was going to be such a monster? You, you know, I would love to say, yes, I knew immediately. I, I, I am a hit maker, and I knew a hit. I didn't know that night. I, I did a really nice vocal. I worked extra hard on it. I doubled it, and I added harmony to it. But it was, it was among another 30 songs, you know, d- during those weeks. Sure, sure. So, so I wasn't sure about it. And I had heard that, um, that when it came out, the DJs were hesitant to play it. So some DJ, a uh, promotion man for RCA and Kirshner up in uh, San Francisco, uh, took the label off and took it to a DJ and said, just play this as a ghost group, as a group you don't know who it is, oh, yeah. and see the reaction. And it got, the phones lit up, I heard, and, and everybody said, well, now, this, who is it? And they said, it's the Archies again, because we had had a couple of singles out before that. So, uh, yeah, it was, but I didn't know that night. I wish I had, but... Uh, Jeff Barry and his mixes, he did like an incredible board mix, just the way he did on I'm a Believer for the Monkees. He, he, he hired almost similar, similar musicians on both records. Boy, that song endures, Ron. And you worked with Bobby Darren. And the thing I always heard about Bobby Darren was like, I think it was like every guy in his family died at a young age. So he was always haunted by that. Like he had to make it. Because he knew he wouldn't live that long. You're absolutely right. I mean, he was accelerated in his career. He couldn't get there fast enough. And uh, he actually worked with Don Kirshner early on and uh, split off and had Split Splish Splash. was his first hit record. Sure. And he actually, he remembered Donnie had helped him. So he gave Don Kirshner a little piece of the publishing on that. And uh, when I met him, he, was, uh, he had his own publishing company, a very smart guy. He had gone into publishing, and he, I was hired as a songwriter at his publishing company. And he would come in every month and take a listen to some of our songs and uh, give us tickets to one of his shows. You know, I actually got to see Bobby Darren at, Co- at the Copacabana. Oh, wow. I had never seen a live show like that in my life. He was a magnificent performer, unbelievable, magnetic. And uh, he, he, he had two different personalities, though. One was he was a hippie in, in sneakers and jeans, and the next time he'd come in with a short hair and a suit and a tie, and he was Mr. Businessman. So you never knew who you were going to get when you worked for him. But uh, he, he, was, he, he was, knew he was going to die young. He did. So that's why he went right into films. He got Sandra D. Sure. He, he moved his career along way quicker than some of the pop artists of the day. I mean, he went from Splish Splash to Mac the Knife. You think about those two songs. They're like totally different. 
you know, one, one is a Frank Sinatra hit, and the other is, you know, type of thing, and Splish Splash is just a pop song. So he, he was very smart. He's smart. He went to Hollywood, got his movie career going, and uh, I, I heard the story that he, he thought his sister was his sister. His sister revealed to him that she was really his mother. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tragedy. And that, and a that tragic his, story. Mother, his mother was actually his grandmother. Amazing story, yeah, was, isn't it? Something you know, similar happened to Jack Nicholson. Yes, I was yeah. just going to say that. Yeah. Jack Nicholson, same exact thing happened to him. Yeah. See, those are times when, you know, people were ashamed of things and stuff. That, that Boy, has it changed now. It's, you know, now nobody would care, you know. Two more cool things about Sugar Sugar before we, we move past it. I, I love this and doing the research. And I want to thank Laura Pinto, too, our mutual friend who was incredible in helping with, with research. She knows absolutely everything about you. <laughs> and she's a fan Uh-oh. of this podcast. And when she we told her you were coming on, she got very excited and sent me a lot of wonderful stuff. But Andy Kim is couldn't didn't have a guitar pick, and he played with a with what during Sugar Sugar's recording? The sound on Sugar Sugar is a matchbook. It's great. instead of a pick, so it's flap 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 on the guitar. But it's really cool because it adds rhythm to the guitar sound. And it just I don't think it's ever happened before. You know, I kept thinking he's going to set himself on fire any minute that that matchbook's <laughs> going to go up. And we're going to have a story for the ages. Oh, yeah, Andy Kim burned himself up playing Sugar Sugar on the original, but it didn't happen. So. Yeah. Andy Kim, who later had a big hit with Rock Me Gently in the oh, 70s. Wow. Yeah. 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 And number the other one. Yeah, absolutely. Number one. The other cool thing about Sugar Sugar, and I hope this is true, uh, I found this, I, I hope that uh, uh, this is factual, the most produced recording in history because post serial put a cardboard version of it on the back of Super Sugar Crisp boxes. Did you know that? Yes, at the and time they, it was on every gr- grocery shelf. <laughs> they mass I, produced I heard they it. Pr- yeah, you could actually cut the cardboard out from the back of the cereal box and play it like 20 times and before it disintegrated. But they are still ar- <laughs> they are still around those things on eBay. People have kept them over the years. Oh, really? They, they have two, yeah, they have two of my so I have a bunch of them. I I remember Mad Magazine Used to have those oh, records yeah. you could tear out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. And they would destroy the needle on your turntable. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Horrible. Who were some of the other groups, Ron, this is fun, that you that you ghosted for? Well, I, I, a lot of them were not successful. Right. But there were a lot of fun names. One was called The $2 Question. <laughs> One was called... I love that. <laughs> Noah's Azark. Right? <laughs> well, that was on Roulette, too, right? No, yes. Noah's Ark. Noah's Azark. There's about Ronnie and the, I recorded under Ronnie and the Dirt Riders, uh, Bo Cooper. I, I, ch- I kept changing my name. I, you thought there were uh, people after me. The amount of I, I must have done 20 different ghost groups, right? And three or four of them did pretty well. But it, you always got a shot. They put sure. out a single. If the single succeeded, they'd do a whole album. So I, I just kept recording. And so, as I said in the beginning, I just kept saying yes. In a time when everybody's tied to contracts and they can't record for another label, I just kept changing my name. So people didn't know who it was and, and they didn't care. You know, and a, a lot of songwriters, I did their demos. They put the demos out as groups. Right. Pearly uh, Gate, yeah. Yeah, California Pearly Gold Gate. Rush, Ronnie, Gold and the, Rush. Ronnie and the Dirt Riders. You did uh, a song we've talked about on this show is Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap. <laughs> Which you, we, do, we do these episodes midweek, uh, Ron, when we don't have a guest like yourself. We do these mini episodes and, and we'll talk about one-hit wonders and, and uh, just, just oddball songs or bands or, or artists who charted once. And Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap came up and you did a cover of it. 
I did a cover of. It was a really silly song, but it was really funny. I never knew what the hell it meant. Can we hear it, please? <laughs> yeah, Some yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. It, it starts off with a big beat. Boom, boom, chick, boom, 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 chick, boom, 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 chick. And I come in. Where's your mama gone? Little baby Don. Little baby Don. Where's your mama gone? Where's your mama gone? Little baby gone. Far, far away. Right? And last night I met my baby singing a song. Ooh-wee. Chirpy, chirpy, cheep, cheep. It's like, I don't know what it meant. But it was a hit in England. They asked me to record it in America. Yes. No problem, you know, and, and that was it. And, and it came out. It was, a, it was a fun record. I never knew what it meant. <laughs> it's so funny because my next question was going to be, what is chirpy, chirpy, chirpy? <laughs> right, right. What the hell? I don't know. It has no, no meaning. People, all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> I miss yeah. that era, Ron. I miss. I used to buy those records. The 1910 Fruit Gum Company on Buddha Records, man. I used oh, to buy sure. all that stuff. Sure. I just worked with them last weekend. You did? Are those guys around, yeah. Simple Simon Says? It's one, two, three, Red, red Light. Red Light, sure. All, all those all those kitty. It's so funny. The guys are all grown up now, right? And they're, they're kind of gray, and they're, you know, they're up on stage, and they're singing, and they're going, all right, everybody in the audience, stand up. And half the audience can't stand up. <laughs> <laughs> But they're standing up, putting their put your nose on, face on, finger on the nose, put your hands up in the air, and the people are going, "I can't find my uh, hands." You know, it was a very strange encounter. But they're very musical, these guys. You'd love them. Yeah, they're great uh, friends. They're fri- I hope to meet friends. them. You remember that song, oh, yeah. "Simple put Simon"? Put your hands in the air. Simple, Simple Simon, Simon says, says, "Put them down by your side." side. Simple, Simple Simon, Simon says, says yeah. "Oh man!" And you'll yeah. never be out. Dude, um, there's, there's an organ in there, yes. or, or a, a farfisa or something. Boy, that is good stuff. Tell yeah, us yeah. about, and speaking of hit records, tell us about how the Cufflinks and Tracy came about. Uh, Cufflinks were... Paul Vance again. This fella, yeah, Paul, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, he's the uncle <laughs> so, of a friend of mine. Sorry to bring him up. No, that's quite all right. A fr- a, a, the guy I used to write with, uh, named Danny, uh, that's his uncle. And right, Danny Vance uncle, from the uh, Detergents. Right, and he introduced me to Paul, and Paul would call me over the years to do a demo or two of his songs. And this time he called me into, after Sugar Sugar had just come out, and a big hit, he called me up and said, would you like to do um, this song Tracy for us? And it's like, yeah, I did a vocal on it. I did like multi-track my voices three or four times. I added another background group of my own. I kept singing until they stopped me. And it sounded like the association of one of the, you know, grassroots. And uh, it came out, and it was a big hit. And it was in the top 10. At the same time, Sugar Sugar was in the top 10. So I had two records in the top 10 at one point, one and nine. And people still didn't know my name, but it was cool. You know, it was just a great kick to have your voice on the radio at the time. Right. I've heard you say even though you were anonymous, you knew that having two top 10 hits was going to lead to big things. Well, it had to. I mean, the voice, people were getting used to my voice. They liked it. The songs were good. Uh, It kicked off my jingle career big time. People in people on Madison Avenue had no, you know you they weren't able to hire somebody who has hit records on the radio this week you know so they they were starting to call and they would say do you want to sing for Budweiser you want to sing for American Airlines I said again yes no problem I'm there you know what time eight in the morning I'm there you know and so that's what led me to it it was so it was a great it was a great kick to have it and it was it, it, for a singer to hear your, your voice on the radio it's a great kick you know it's like watching a video of your own concert you go wow. I did that, you know. Tracy, you're gonna be happy with me. I'll build a world around you. 
I do love that song, too. Let's talk about, too, the, the commercials since you bring them up. And Gilbert was very impressed when I came into the studio tonight, and I was telling him how many commercials you did and how many how many are, are kind of iconic. Yes. Can you sing a couple of the jingles you remember? He, he does it in his act. You do it in the uh, live show, don't you, Ron? You, you I, do, I do a little me- commercial medley? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, you deserve a break today, so get up and get away. To McDonald's. Thank you very much. Well, wow. he, still, he still hits the notes. Wow. And I like one. Sometimes you feel like a nut. <laughs> Sometimes you don't. Mom and Joey's got nuts. Boom. Bounds don't. Something like that. Really cool. There was a really cool one. Uh, I drink Dr. Pepper and I'm proud. I used to get lost in a crowd. But now you look around these days. Seems to be a Dr. Pepper craze. Boom, boom, boom. I'm a pepper. You're a pepper. He's a pepper. She's a pepper. Wouldn't you like to be a pepper, too? Be a pepper. Drink Dr. Pepper. All right. That's fantastic. Wow. Is that Thank your you. voice in the famous Dr. Pepper commercials where David Naughton is jumping around? and? No, that I did all the radio spots. You did the radio some spots. some of the TV spots. But D- David sang and danced ah, in that spot. He was just okay. great. I was mis- yeah, he was just great. I don't like to take credit for David's right. stuff. Sure. Yeah. Uh, sure, I was mistaken. Yeah. So many commercials. There was Lifesavers. There was uh, K- KFC. And didn't Barry wind up writing some of those jingles? He, there he a, wrote there's a couple. A, there's some symmetry there, too. Yes, I met Barry when we were doing a commercial. He had written, like, a, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. He wrote one of those and Band-Aid commercials, different things. And uh, he was just getting started in the jingle business. But, uh, yes, Barry sang on a bunch of commercials. In fact, when I produced him early on in his career, he said, you know, I've only got one hit when I go out to play shows. What, what should I do? I said, sing some commercials. Oh, that was your said, idea. Of course. I, I, I gave him the idea. I said, if you put this in the act, it's like six hit records if you do these different commercials. And it worked. People were singing along. He had a bubble maker on stage, was making bubbles as he sang like Lawrence Welk. And the people went crazy <laughs> over it. it, was, it <laughs> I was I was telling Ron before we turned on the mics that I saw Barry Manilow years ago at Forest Hills Tennis Stadium, and he not only did the commercial uh, uh, medley, but he took out the accordion. Oh yeah, and he, he did loved the, that accordion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was his source, the, the accordion. He, before he played piano, he played accordion a lot. Yeah. Yeah. He played Lady of Spain, he finished, the crowd gave him a standing ovation, and he said, would Billy Joel do this? <laughs> He's had such a, a great sense of humor. I'm looking his at some... Of, yeah. Go ahead. His sense of humor was a saving grace, because it, with all his romantic songs and those love songs and stuff, his live show, it shows what a, a nice guy he is. You know, he, he likes his fans, and he, he loves performing. Yeah, you ever meet Barry Manilow, Gilbert? Oh, yes. He's a very nice yeah. guy. As, as a matter of fact... We sort of worked together, even Uh-oh. though we didn't run. In what context? There was a cartoon made by Don Bluth. Is this the Pebble and the Penguin? Uh, no, yeah. okay. no. Because I know he did that one. Thumbelina. Oh. Thumbelina. I, I was Berkeley or Barkley Beetle, <laughs> and and he did the music for it. And, and uh, that was our connection. Yeah, no, he loves to do those kind of things. Sure, I thought I thought you might have opened for him at once because at one point in his career, all the comics—Joan Rivers, everybody, David Steinberg—everybody was opening for Barry. He didn't want a singer. He said, "I don't want a singer in front of me. I want to be the only singer on the bill." But I love comics, so he, everybody, all the comics would open for him at times. I thought you might have done that at one point. You do, you would have been great. 
to open, you know, like do your act before him. It would have been a great combination. That would blow my mind to oh, go yes. see you <laughs> open for Barry Manilow. I mean, come on. I mean, it's just got to be great. <laughs> I think I would recover from that. What were so, some of these? He's a very he's a very nice guy. I worked with him on a couple of talk shows. Very sweet and, and a, a great sense of humor and a lover of comedy and old movies. Really, really knows his showbiz history. He does. Which he we does. appreciate. Yeah. Uh, what was Devil's Shake? I'm looking at some of these other things. Do you remember these things that you that you well, sang for? Well, I sang for products you've never heard of. because I was sang from a, a Coke problem that tasted like rust. And they wanted us to do a, <laughs> what was that? Do a great commercial. It was, it was, I forget what it was called. It was horrible. You know. But Devil's Shake, the, the reason that's probably in my bio at some point, because it was the very first, one of the very first commercials I ever sang. And, and, show, you know, and it was what a great thing to, you know, and I hired a bunch of my friends to sing with me. So it was like a real great uh, event to sing. It, never, it was a test product also for like a chocolate drink. Right, right, but, right. Uh, it, was, it was great. I worked, for, I worked for the very best jingle producers in New York City. Uh, a girl named Susan Hamilton had a, an incredible company. Steve Carmen was a very, very famous jingle guy, wrote the Budweiser Spot, sure. Tia Ron. What a bunch of Cleos. And there was a crazy guy named Joe Brooks who wrote uh, a ton of commercials I sang on, including the Pepsi commercial with Hal Linden doing the announcing. And uh, it's amazing that they were, very, they, were, they were multi-million dollar companies based on just writing a 60-second spot. It was amazing. Another, it, another podcast connection, Hal Linden. Oh, also, I realized you're the second person to sing the McDonald's commercial. We also had John Amos. We had John Amos here on the show, yeah, and he's in right. an early, he's in one of those early spots with Anson Williams. Sure, sure. Yeah. They, they did millions of those spots. They, they, they were great. You know, uh, and, and a lot of singers in New York City got their exposure and got their training on those commercials. Michael you, Bolton, a whole bunch sure. of people used to sing aside me on the commercials. You think it's a bit of a dying art, Ron, because I don't hear the, the kind of jingles that we grew up with. Oh, no, they're gone. They're you know, gone. I mean, the artistry, the, the, the most most music you get today is I'm loving it. I mean, that, that's, that's a spot. Somebody got paid to write, I'm loving it, from McDonald's. Yeah. Where's, the, where's the music? So it's really died out uh, because the, the, now they use a famous song. You know, if they There's need a lot of that, yeah. They'll use Happy Together for a commercial. They'll license something. But the, the jingle houses have passed and away, I think. That's too bad. John Lennon said in an interview that he thinks, like when he listen, watches TV and hears commercial jingles, they're as good as any of the Beatles' early stuff. Wow. That's a great compliment. That's wow. interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that stuff, those are the earworms, you know, but the stuff that we grew up on, there was real artistry to them. Well, they had to get to the hook. Yeah. In 30 seconds and pound it home by 60 seconds. That, that's really what the jingle produced. So, so you have to accelerate the, the amount of uh, catchy melody and hooks as, as quickly as possible. And that's why some of those great commercials of the past still sound great. You know, you hear Budweiser, and here comes the king, here comes the king, here comes the king number one. Budweiser beer, Budweiser. Yeah, that's yeah, that's great. Nice. It's very musical. <laughs> and Paul- I should be getting paid for this. <laughs> well, we'll send- I should be getting like royalties on this. I'm, I'm doing all these commercials. I'm going to sing for Cadillac. Wait. No. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Paul, Paul Williams had a number one song. Oh, which yes. We've only just begun, which was a bank commercial. Very good. Bill. Yeah. You're uh, impressing me yeah. tonight. <laughs> no, you, 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 you got it. That's right. Yeah. It was a beautiful commercial. What a great record, by the oh, way. Oh, absolutely. We have, we have. only just begun. 
To live what lesson <laughs> promises. <laughs> a kiss for look and we're done alone. We've only just begun. <laughs> Watching Ron Dante on a, on a screen laughing at your Paul Williams impression. <laughs> That's very funny. That's just very a, funny. True. Okay, no. no. <laughs> True surrealism. Sorry, that, was, that was mean. That was me. It's a tr- truly surreal moment. We were talking to our friend Danny Duraney is here, and he said we we came into the studio. He said, "Oh, Ron Dante." He said, "You got we got to talk about uh, the Chan Clan." Which oh yeah, you- I, I, Chan Clan. I, I love Charlie Chan growing up. It was great movies with Cindy Tola, sure, right, and all these different guys. But, but they, they Warner Roland. Yeah. yeah. Oh, were, and were, and and the last one was Roland. Roland Winter. Winters. Yes. Very right. good. Yes. 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 I Very loved good. those movies. The number one son. I loved him. Um, actually, Don Kirshner again came to me and said, "We're doing a cartoon series based on Charlie Chan and his family, and I want you to write ten or fifteen songs for it and sing it." And be the group. So I'm, it's the Archies again. I wrote a bunch of songs with my good friend Howie Greenfield, who was a famous songwriter. Wrote, sure, uh, of course. Know, yeah, you know, breaking up is hard hits. to do. Breaking up is hard to do, and you know, love will keep us together. Uh, he, amazing songwriter. Wrote all those Neil Sedaka hits. He got, we got in a room, and in about two weeks, we knocked out all the songs for the Chan Clan, and uh, we sent them out to California to be animated, like you know, your stuff. And it came back, and here, here's the family, and I loved it. But it's just like the Archies. I didn't change my voice. I didn't like come up with a different take on it. I just gave them what I do, and it was it was fun to see it for a while. It was the first. Um, a, you know, Asian America cartoon series on a network on yeah. CBS, and you, it was, it was a first. You couldn't do it today. I, I guess not. No, it's not happening no. that much. Key Luke yeah. was the was the Charlie Chan was the voice of Charlie yes. Chan. Now, Ray didn't Luke. didn't he go on to be the old man in Kung Fu? Key Luke. I think that sounds right. Yeah, that sounds that right. And it's I think Robert good. Ito, who went on to be Quincy's sidekick, was the actor doing uh, was was also on Chan Clan. Yeah, no, there was a, there were a lot of good uh, good uh, actors in that uh, doing the voices because voiceover is a great business, right? Everybody wants to, you know, it's, it's, it's easy. You come in in your, your, your pajamas and you sing or act. It's great. Right. You're, you're like a, the, the, the guy who could just do any kind of voice, any kind of, any kind of gig. It's a commercial. It's, a, it's an animated series. It's w- w- whatever it is. You're there and you're adapting. Well, I'm a journeyman singer. I started off as a singer. I'll end as a singer. I got into producing. I did. I got big, big things going on. But basically, this is what I do. And I love it. I still sing. I still make records. If I produce somebody, I sing backgrounds for them because that's what I love to do. And, and, and it is uh, funny. When you do something you love, it leads you to all the other things. Yeah. You know, they come along. You know, the opportunities come along. And I, I've, I've been very fortunate. I was in the right place at the right time with my guitar and, and the, the, my demeanor was something that people wanted to work with. They liked me, and I liked them. You're a chameleon, Ron, and I mean that as a compliment. I mean, you really, you really, you, you, <laughs> you, you really can do, you can do anything. Was it Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Who was the actors who spent? Frederick Spencer March Tracy. and Spencer Frederick Tracy. March, he, he didn't change that much. He just kind of bent over and his hands got crooked in the movie. Oh, John Barrymore. That's did it. That. Barrymore, he, right. he, yeah. He, did it. he would open his eyes really wide. <laughs> And stick his chin and bottom teeth out and right. curl his fingers. <laughs> so they saved on uh, special effects. Definitely. He gave them a special effect without any help. Amazing. 
I always loved him. It was like a real theater actor, Jekyll oh, and Hyde. It was, it, he was great. He was great. He, t- towards the end of his career, when he did television and stuff, they had to put the lines up on, on uh, outside the camera angle, and he would just be reading his lines, and he still sounded and acted great. You know, <laughs> he just didn't want to study his words, and he didn't want to <laughs> commit it to memory. And, yeah, hell with it. And he was bombed out of his skull more <laughs> yes. often than not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And since you brought up Spencer Tracy, was Spencer Tracy did he did his did he somehow inspire Tracy by the cufflinks? Is, you know, it could have been. It could have been because uh, the fellow who wrote it uh, was a fan of Spencer Tracy. I'm sure something had to do with that name because there weren't that many girls named Tracy in 1969. Right. Interesting. Ever since then, there's a lot more. Every time I go to my concerts, I mentioned it, and and girls scream, and, and the drunk girls run to the the front of the audience and try to get on stage with me. And they're Tracys. I say, well, see, you're probably how old are you? And they go, bye bye. And I go, that's about the right time. You know, you never can tell. Let's talk a little bit too, but as we as we wind down, just talk about working with Barry. You met him at a at a jingle session. Yes, you, we, were, we were singing some product for Coke that tasted like rust. But he arranged it, and and I remember it was a really good arrangement. The the band played great. It was really cool. It was sixty seconds of pop hit, and uh, on I was one of the hired singers along with Melissa Manchester and Valerie Simpson. Of Ashford and oh, Simpson. very cool. And, and Barry and I were the two guys, and they were the two girls, and we sang that day, and it was what a great sound we all made, right? All good singers. Of course. And Bar- after the session, Barry said, oh, I know you're from the Archies and the Cufflinks, and you're doing jingles. He said, I'd like to record. I said, well, do you write? He said, I write. I've got some great songs. I said, well, let's meet in a day or so, and let me hear your songs. And I met him a couple of days later, and uh, he told me he was working with this girl, Bette Midler, who was working at the Continental Baths with him, and he said she's got a record deal, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be, you know, I want to be a singer. I don't want to be her arranger, and I don't want to be the guy in the piano pit behind her. And I listened to a few of his songs. He played me Could It Be Magic, one of those that based on the Chopin prelude mm-hmm. that he wrote. And, wow, I said, well, this is quality, and he sounded great. I said, let's go in the studio. We'll make, we'll make like four demos. And we did four demos, and uh, we arranged... <laughs> We arranged a showcase for the record companies at the Continental Bass, right? So we're sitting there, and we put the four record company presidents in the front row, and behind them are all these naked guys with towels and stuff. And if they like you, they, if they like you, they throw the towels at you, right? So towels were flying that night. So the record company guys made an offer. They said, "We'll, we'll give you an album deal." And we took a, an album deal with a small label, and uh, we recorded our first album. And um, after that, about a year and a half later, the, the, the label changed hands and a guy named Clive Davis came in to be the president. And uh, he threw everybody off the label except Barry and Melissa Manchester and myself. So uh, then we ended up recording Mandy. And that key, that is f- so funny. One key change in a song made his career because it was called Brandy, as everybody mentioned. Yeah, it was a different it was song, right? It was, it was a yeah. different, like yeah. hard rock kind of. Yeah. It, it was upbeat, definitely. It, was, yeah. it had tempo and stuff. And Barry, to his credit, slowed it down. He said, no, I can do it. How about like this? Slow. Nice. Ballad. And, and we recorded it that night. And uh, there were just three pieces on it, bass, drums, and piano. And he sang a live vocal. And that's the live vocal on the record. It's like, you know, when you do something really well, or when, when like uh, lightning strikes 
and you say, this was a great set, and I'm glad they caught it. That's what happened that night. You could just feel the electricity in the studio. We recorded at a place called Media Sound, which was a, a, a reconverted chapel. There were still pews in there and a stained glass, and I, I was praying for a hit. For here, sure. here in the city? Yeah, right here in New York City, 57th and, Street. Right? Well, not far from and where we are. Melissa Manchester, is it true that she's sweet Melissa, angel of my lifetime? You're absolutely right. That's Gil, like you did bad. research. <laughs> yeah, very good, Gilbert. It was like the CIA today. He's unbelievable. He's, he's got his secret sources fire, and right. he's got his info. I love it. He's on fire. Is it just the vocals? Is it just you and Barry multi-tracking your voices? Yes, on Mandy. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, and same thing with I Write the Songs. It sounds like a choir, but it's just my vocal overkill. I, we multi-track our voices. I sing high, I sing low, I sing mid. Barry say, did the same, and we mix it all together. It sounds like 400 guys, and it's just the two of us on Mandy, I Write the Songs, Can't Smile Without You, any of our records. It's just, it, we call ourselves the Barons. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a bad joke. You guys but, had uh, the golden touch. I mean, it's a Mandy, it's a miracle. Could it be magic? I write the songs trying to get the feeling. This one's for you. Weekend in New England. Daybreak. Can't smile with it. It just keeps going on. Hit, you know, I'm, 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 after again, hit. I'm exhausted. Frank, I'm, I'm exhausted again. I, I can't <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting so tired and winded thinking about all the... We had 18 top uh, 20 records in a yeah. row. Which I mean, was, we, we were, from 75 to 80, we were the middle-of-the-road uh, songs. And uh, I'm proud of them because they were really good songs. You know, we've, I knew a lot of good songwriters, so did Barry. And Barry wrote half of them, yeah. but half of them came from different people. Well, Randy Edelman and, and Bruce Johnston and Marty Panzer, I have to give them credit, too, for those, those great songs. Absolutely. Richard David, Kerr. D- David Pomeranz, who you've mentioned yeah. on previous. Uh, oh, on my previous, God, Richard yes. Kerr and Will Jennings. Yeah, David David Pomeranz uh, was doing the singing in the movie Zapped. This is what he brought up with, on a previous with episode. Scott Baio and Willie Ames. Right. And, you brought that up when we had Greg Evigan on the show. And Scatman Crothers. Wow. I love <laughs> Scatman. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a hell of a group. The wow. Scatman. <laughs> Speaking of Greg Evigan, did you, and I, I did not see this directly in the research, but I'm sussing this out. Did you audition for the for the Greg Evigan, uh, Paul Schaefer short-lived show that Don Kirshner produced? I think I remember. I did. I auditioned for top? every... Com- yeah, I, I did. I did. And they, they wanted me to... Uh, the original concept was four guys or something like that, and uh, they wanted me to wear a stupid hat. They said, you got you to wear this stupid hat if you're going to be in the show. And I said... I've come a long way. I don't have to wear this stupid hat to get in your pilot. And so I turned it down. And then Paul, of course, came around and, and, and they changed the whole concept of it, what was happening. Right. And I was very happy for Paul because he's such a great guy. He, he helped me. with a, He was the only piano player that I could hire on Barry Manilow sessions. I brought Paul in to play on uh, Bandstand Boogie and a whole album. And I remember Barry was very picky about who else was on keys in his sessions. But he loved Paul. Because Paul had that great, you know, when he shows up, you love the guy. Of course. And he's, a, and he's a super talented keyboard player. He knows every pop song known to man. He can play the happy organ, which you tried with my comics. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember that. I, I'm a master of the happy organ. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what was his name? Dave Baby, the guy that did the happy organ song. Cortez. Dave Baby Cortez. Right. Oh, can you sing some of that for us, please? No, no, that, that's an instrumental. <laughs> it's an instrumental. I need an organ. <laughs> wait, wait. Well, can you add no, words I... to it? 
Well, I'll just add words. Paul, yes. <laughs> Paul produced one of your uh, one of your albums, Two Street Angel. Yes, I, I brought Paul. I got a, a label wanted to sign me and give me a solo album. Said, "Who do you want to produce with?" I said, "I'm going to. I want Paul Schaefer to arrange it." And so uh, we went down to the BG studio in Miami. Criteria. I said, "That's a lucky studio. The BGs did all their hits out of the studio. Must be something magic in that studio." So Paul and I went down there for three weeks to Miami, and we went in every day and made records. And the studio stunk. The studio sound was the worst sound you've ever heard. The drums sound like it was hitting cardboard. They couldn't get a good sound. I took all the stuff back to New York to Media Sound, the, the, the chapel, and remixed it. And, of course, it all sounded beautiful. But uh, Paul was great as a co- co-producer and a ranger because he's got really good arranging chops. He doesn't use them that much, but he's, he really can arrange a thing. I, I remember once I was doing a, a classical rock group. These twin guys who played grand pianos and it was classical rock with da 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 da, you know, to big themes. And my uh, arranger, who I had hired first, didn't show up with the arrangements. I had 30 pieces in the orchestra waiting for the arrangements. So Paul walks in. He's my keyboardist on the day. I said, Paul, you got to help me here. Write some arrangements quickly. He went to the back room. He wrote a string arrangement. He wrote a horn arrangement, some chords. He saved the date. Paul wow. saved the date. I would have, it would have been a complete disaster. My, my, uh, the arranger I had hired I would, did classical work. I thought he'd be perfect for it, but he was, you know, he, he didn't show up. <laughs> he didn't show up. And what do you do when the arrangements don't show up? You know, Paul Schaefer saved, saved the day. Did you guys go deep sea diving at some point? We went deep sea fishing. Deep sea fishing. <laughs> I took the entire band. <laughs> off Can you the imagine coast Paul Schaefer? Oh, <laughs> and everybody turned green. Paul Schaefer turned a deep pur- purple green after about the first hour out there. We were catching sharks and minnows, and every and I was saying, "Let's have some beer. Let's have a sandwich." And everybody's sicker than dogs. My camera crew, everybody was sick. Uh, I have a picture of that somewhere. It's, yeah. it's, it's amazing. After, afterwards, we caught a, we caught a hammerhead shark. <laughs> I've never I've never fished in my entire life. I'm reeling in this this eight foot hammerhead shark. I said, I'm going to hurt my hand here. I can't play guitar with this hammerhead. Somebody else reeled it in. So that was that was the yeah. day. But Paul was a good sport about it. We went back into the studio the next day. I have a mole who told me that a friend I work with, a guy named Bob Lampell, who was there that day. Oh my God, he was the videographer. You bet. I work That's with him. Right. I work with him every day at ABC, and he said, "You asked Ron Dante about going deep sea fishing with Paul Schaefer." Oh, oh, <laughs> it just—it kind of blew it my was, head. It was such a disaster. It was never take people deep. Sea. I didn't know what it was about. I, I said, "Let's go out deep sea fishing." We're in Miami. What do you do? You know, you go to highlight or you go deep sea fishing. But uh, that didn't work out. Yeah. Now I gotta ask you if you do a. Uh, Paul Schaefer imitation, because you've worked with him so much. A Paul Sch- oh, gee, that's a great question. That's great. If I would, I've never done it, but but Paul is Paul is uh, nasal. He's got very nasal <laughs> sound, you know. And, and and he goes, yes, David, yes, David, yes, whatever you want, David. That's good, good, David. Keep talking. I'm fine here. I'm having fun with the band. You do what you want at the desk. Pretty <laughs> good. <laughs> that's pretty good. I hope Paul you, you, you do offense. a little Schaefer, don't you? Yeah, don't oh, you? yeah. Let yeah, he would go, hey, you know, Gilbert, <laughs> Gilbert, uh, yeah, yeah, that's funny in the beginning of this set. And then he's got yeah, that sudden staccato right. laugh yeah, that yeah. suddenly bursts out and he bursts out into laughter. He's a, he's a fun guy. Paul, Paul is another guy with no show business history, boy. 
you could yeah, sit- he was just he was just at my show a weekend ago in New York City, Staten Island. I played the St. George Theater there, and the nineteen ten was on the bill with me. The oh, sorry, we and, missed that. And Herman's Hermits, Peter Noon, and I invited Paul to come and. Paul showed up. It's like two weeks ago. He's he's the best friend you could have. He loves to come to these things and enjoy backstage. So I took him backstage. He met everybody. We took pictures. He's, he's just a great guy. He's out there touring himself with yeah. the, the, you know his band. Yeah, they're going to be they're going to be here in Los Angeles, I think, on June sometime. Yeah, we, he's getting around. We got to get Paul back on and plug, oh, and yeah. plug those dates. And speaking of you being here, performing here, you're going to be back in. Do I have the the Happy Together tour? Do I have the dates right? You're back here in June. Yes, at, June, West, June. at Westbury? I'll be at Westbury, yes. And I'll be all over New Jersey and uh, north of you and south of you. It, it's uh, f- almost 50 dates. It's, it's you and our friend Howard Kalen. That's right, Howard. And Mark Volman and, and yeah. who else? The Cow Sills. Oh, the Cow Sills. Oh. The Cow Sills, they're great. Uh, and uh, the uh, Box Tops. Give me a ticket for an airplane. <laughs> sure. <laughs> they'll, they'll be on the tour. The Association singing Cherish. And never my love, and beautiful songs, and it's it's going to be a, a killer. Chuck Nigren from the Three Dog Night we, yeah. singing "Celebrate," and you know some great stuff. He's a wonderful guy, and he still has great chops. So it's going to be a, a, a fun night. Please come. Yeah, we got to go know. to this. Oh, you guys yeah, show absolutely. up. Let me know if you want to Westbury on June sixteenth. Sure. We absolutely would be sure good to meet Howard too. We had him on the show. Yeah, no, no. Uh, email me so I know. Absolutely. Are you are you willing to sing with this man, uh, Ron? As we take this. Uh, as we as we wind this down, he he did sing "Happy Together" with Howard last week. I'll have you know he sang "Wichita Lineman" with with Jimmy Webb. Oh yes! Oh, oh my, what a kick! You know I live for these moments. So <laughs> <laughs> now, but I'm, I'm I'm game if you are. Okay. Now we're we're not sure of your voice, but I'll carry you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! What do you feel oh, like yeah. doing, Frankie? Do you have that queued up? This okay. is karaoke uh, th- uh, music, So you'll Ron. start first, then. I'll start. I'll p- we'll point. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Here goes nothing. Ah, uh, sugar. Ah, uh, honey, honey. You are my candy girl. And you got me wanting you. Take it, Gil. You are my candy girl, and you got me what you. <laughs> I just can't believe the loveliness of loving you. I just can't believe it's true. I just can't believe the wonder of this feeling, too. I just can't believe it's true. Ah, <laughs> oh, sugar! <laughs> Sugar, sugar, <laughs> you are my candy girl, and you got me wanting you. When I kissed you, girl, I wait, knew wait, 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 how go, sweet a go. kiss could be. I knew how sweet a kiss could be. <laughs> Pick it up your behind. Like the summer sunshine, pour your sweetness over me. Pour your sweetness over me. Pour your sweetness over me. You're late. Oh, <laughs> 
himself with his earphone cord. No, no, Jeff, Jeff Barry just called the writer of the the writer of the song just called. He jumped off a building. <laughs> but it was the Brill Building. If it makes yes, you feel yes. any better. <laughs> we we want to apologize to Andy Kim and to Jeff the great Jeff Barry. That's a classic rendition, though. That is funny. Yes. I want a copy of that. I do. I love that. I'm a, I'm a kid. I love that. We'll get that to you, Ron. It's not quite Wilson Pickett's cover, is it? No, no. Not quite. No, no. no. Should, should we try it, locomotion? It's, it's head and shoulders above. <laughs> it should be, we should do your animated uh, from Aladdin and me singing together with you. Well. <laughs> It, that's what it can I see. Arranged. When you do it, that's what I'm seeing. You know? <laughs> oh, you're seeing the parrot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's perfect. It's just perfect. I, I gotta get a copy of this. I love it. I'll post it. You know, you know, Ron. We, we, he is. I'm gonna tell you quickly while you're looking up the lyrics. Some of the people he sang with. He just did. Do you want to know a secret with Billy J. Kramer? Oh man, I love Billy. Great. Yeah, he he did Wichita Lineman and MacArthur Park uh, with Jimmy Webb. We did Tie a Yellow Ribbon with Tony. Uh, who else? Who am I missing? God, there's a bunch. I we Paul have, Williams, you and Paul, oh, you and oh Paul saying the Rainbow Connection. We, Rainbow <laughs> Connection and uh, nice to be around. And and he sang uh, he sang put on a happy face with Dick Van Dyke and, and uh, super califragilistic. So there might be a, there That's might be an LP. Good. There's there's definitely uh, something's coming up here. That's very. <laughs> 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 and it's not me. I think it's Flem. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'll be coming up afterwards. <laughs> you know what you need? We need the old K-Tel days with the old, uh, right. the, the, the LP collection. All right, here, you want to try, you guys, you guys are brave all right, souls. I'll do the opening Okay, part. you do the, everybody's doing a brand new, good, 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 good. And I, this should be good. Okay. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Come on, baby, do the locomotion. I know you'll like, get to like it if you give it a chance now. Come on, baby, do the locomotion. Little baby sister can do it with me. It's easier than doing it in ABC. I got it. Come on, jump back. All 
that stuff. Let me do it. Now that you can do it, let's make a chain now. Come on, baby, do the locomotion. A chug-a-chug-a-motion like a railroad train now. Come on, baby, do the locomotion. Do it nice and easy, don't lose control. A little bit of rhythm and a lot of soul. This is, this is going great. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> come on, come on, come on. I, I forget what song we're singing. <laughs> this, is, this is great. Oh, my, my. Boy, did we screw that one up. Carol King, she's not going to so so speak to you again, today. Ron. Well, I I usually work with better singers. (laughs) That's below the belt. (laughs) That man is Italian. Uh, (laughs) I'll call my my cousin Gugu. He'll come over and talk to you. No neck, but very sweet. You know, we we had a shot at Carol on getting Carol on the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, that's it just gone. went on the boards. That shot to shit. Now. Oh God, <laughs> Ron, you may be the best sport we've had yet. You're a brave, brave soul. I want to I want to plug a couple of your records too. The anthology, which is uh, wonderful stuff on it, particularly the song "Charmer" that I love, and also your favorite CD, where you do uh, "Rock Me Gently," you do "The Grassroots," you do "Happy Together," which I heard you say is a song you you wish you had recorded. Yes, very much. And now I'm I'm going to hear it every night. <laughs> Happy together. That's right. <laughs> I don't know oh, about you... my favorite song at the end of the tour. I'll be going, oh, no, not that song again. No, I'm looking forward you... to seeing those guys and hearing it. It's going to be a great tour. I tell you what, uh, when we send you the uh, the copy of, uh, of Sugar Sugar that we just did, we'll send you the co- a copy of Gilbert and Howard. Doing happy together. That would be great. I would love to hear that. This, this, this is a hoot. This is a hoot. You missed your callings, Gilbert. You missed your callings. Let's get down to the fact that's a melodious sound you make. It's just, come on. So, so Ron, what else is coming up? The tour is coming up. What else are you doing these days? Oh my You're God. always busy. I'm always busy. I, I am producing again. I'm producing uh, two new acts. One is a Christian act named Jeremy Gaynor, who was on The Voice. And he's okay. a, he's a sergeant from West Point, and we're doing uh, we're doing an album together. Uh, I'm, I'm recording him. I think he's going to be a big star. And I'm also pr- producing a new group called the Foucaults. Uh, from uh, they're originally from Long Island. They're a family group, kind of like the Partridge Family with Edge. Oh <laughs> yeah, with a, with a little more rock and roll. And uh, I'm working with them uh, actually in the middle of the month. So I do keep my hand in a lot of things, not just uh, singing, but I'm, I'm, I'd love to produce. And, yeah. uh, and you, you'll hear about both these acts probably by the end of the year. And uh, Wonderful. Yeah. I've really enjoy- I have really enjoyed this. This has been the most fun I've had in a long time. Oh, that's nice oh, of you to say. thank yeah. you, Ron. You're sweet. Thanks for doing it. Oh, I'm, ex- I'm exhausted. I know Ron is. 
<laughs> so let me wrap this up. Uh, I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. Once again at Nutmeg with our engineer Frank Verderosa. And we've been talking and more importantly singing with someone whose girl voice I've jerked off to. <laughs> uh, when you were the voice of Betty and Veronica. No, he corrected you on that. Yes. He cleared but, that up. But he did sing it today. Yeah, so I'm I will, honored by that. I, 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 will be, I will be whacking it right after we get off the air. Howard Kalen's going to be so jealous. Yeah. <laughs> and we've been talking to singer, writer, arranger, producer, Ron Dante. The man that even worked with Max von Sydow, for Christ's sake. Oh, my God. <laughs> Max you were in The Exorcist? <laughs> I was The Exorcist. <laughs> <laughs> the great Ron Dante. <laughs> my my singing partner. Ron, a personal treat for me. Thank you, guys. Th- thanks, thanks for Thank doing this, you. man. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, guys. Enjoy New York. I was just there. I loved it. Uh, I'll see you when I come to Westbury. We'll see you in June. Okay. Thank you, buddy. 